0: everybody. This is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast for the week of September 9th, 2021. I am here with filmmaker and writer and podcaster, Kath Tolentino. Hello. And cinematographer and writer, Todd Blankenship. Hey, how's it going? And we are going to be talking about the big, massive opening for Shang-Chi over the weekend. We are going to be talking about a good deal, bad deal, about working on holidays. And then we have two pieces of tech news this week. Both Fuji and Red, interesting announcements we want to talk about this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our top story this week, Shang-Chi opened with the second biggest opening of the pandemic. And there's a bunch of things in here that are relevant to filmmakers. First off, second biggest is not usually that big news, but the biggest was black widow and black widow is Scarjo, Who's been a celebrity forever. And the black widow has been part of the Avengers thing. And like, there's a lot of pre-built marketing building on that. Shang-Chi is a newer character in the Marvel universe. I mean, been in the comics for a long time, but newer in terms of getting more prominent placement. So there's not as much of a built in, obviously Marvel and Disney help, but, it's a newer star to try and build. It taking the second biggest box office of the pandemic is kind of huge news. It's also, apparently, Labor Day is a week movie weekend. It's the biggest Labor Day weekend of all time at 76 million. And the runner up was 2007's Halloween at 26 million. Oh, so wow. apparently, That's crazy. I know. Doesn't it seem like Labor? I mean, I, I guess the thought... argument is box office is teenagers and teenagers are all labor day weekend getting ready to go back to school or something?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, or I feel like all families are on vacation and at the beach.
2: Yeah, it's like the last the last weekend before everything gets cold again, I guess. It feels like, I don't know. That's interesting though. I I would have assumed, I mean, I feel like I'm always at the theater on labor day weekend.
1: I feel like people are traveling, other people are traveling and therefore do not want to see movies because they're out seeing the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is a lot of travel on Labor Day weekend, which is a great thing. You should travel on Labor Day weekend. I never really travel on Labor Day weekend because as a professor, it's usually my semester's either started or it's last minute prep for the semester. So I will often see a movie on Labor Day weekend, but I didn't see Halloween in 2007. Before we get into <laughs> talking about the relevant stuff here, I just want to point out that when I Googled it, I got three headlines, The Guardian had a headline about how representation in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings made up for all the flaws in Mulan. And then CNBC just had a very like simple one about how Shang-Chi hit a record number. And then Fox News, Shang-Chi made this major NASCAR mistake, which is almost like a cliche of like, Fox News headlines like trying to pander to NASCAR. And
2: I feel like if you wrote that, it would be, it would be like kind of (laughs) hacky.
0: Yeah. If this was a 30 rock joke, people would be like, all right, well, that's the first option, but like, let's, let's, that's a placeholder for a better joke later.
1: (laughs) I do not even remember there being race cars in the movie. What? So there's no race cars in the
0: movie. At one point, the star, Simuli, Lou, and Aquafina get in a car when they're valet drivers. And Aquafina says, Jeff Gordon is the winningest driver in nascar history and actually he's the third winningest the winningest is richard petty oh and my god that makes this a petty headline boom <laughs> yeah not a major mistake when someone makes a joke it also seems in character for the uh type of character i haven't seen the film yet but the types of characters where you cast aquafina her knowledge of nascar trivia might not be the most accurate and i think Completely it's fine agree. Like I do not expect every character in every movie to be like a pedant who's memorized Wikipedia. You can be wrong. Like a character can be wrong about who's the winning NIST driver in NASCAR without the movie being wrong, and that's certainly not the headline.
2: I just love the thought of someone like in the middle of the movie being like, "Oh boy, I'm going to write an article about that later." <laughs>
0: like, yeah, it's just. Such well, a I funny mean, if you're the Fox News writer who's movie reviewing, you're actively watching, looking for things to pick at, right. to inflame culture war culture war bullshit. The interesting thing here about this movie from a filmmaker's perspective is Black Widow hit $80 million back in July, but was a simultaneous day and date release. They were in the theater and on Disney Plus same day. But there's this ongoing debate, which many people have an opinion about, Soderbergh and presidents of Warner Brothers and, and many people about whether or not it is important to preserve what we call the theatrical window, like having it in the theaters before it's at home to try and drive people who are excited to see it into theater. This movie, Shang-Chi, did that. It is theater only at the moment. You cannot see it on Disney Plus yet. And some people are saying that probably drove a higher box office number. And honestly, I have to say, as a filmmaker, that's great. I want studios that want to release movies in theaters first because... Like if the studio's motivation is more money, whatever, as long as it's getting movies in theaters where I like seeing movies, that's awesome. You saw it over the weekend, Kath.
1: Yeah, I did. I didn't love it, which I'm so sad about. Everyone else loves it. I obviously, being Chinese American and am really into the Asian American themes, loved all the actors. I thought the performances were fantastic. You know, there's a lot to like about the movie where I had an issue it was like the plot line was so circuitous very just sort of weighted down. I mean, we talk about this with superhero movies all the time. They're trying to do so many things. It's really hard to get it all right. But ultimately, I just felt like, why are we here? Wait, why are they going over there? Why do they need to do this? How how are these characters actually feeling? They're all making decisions that aren't really motivated by genuine interest. They're motivated by plot. Just like major, what I thought to be writing flaws. I would love to like figure out how the sausage gets made in terms of like the script for these superhero movies, because they just, so many of them end up being kind of disappointing.
2: Yeah. They feel like they've like just got noted to death and it kind of stole whatever essence might've been like powerful about it. I'm assuming I I haven't seen the movie yet, so I'm just trying to. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's some, I'm sorry, Todd, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like, no, you're good. There are lots of great things about it. And then there's a couple of moments where it feels like they're trying to sort of like pander to the Asian American audience. So like this family where the dad has lived for over a thousand years and they have this like really cool sort of time ageless compound they live in as a family. At one point there's a scene where they're like playing dance dance revolution in the living room, and I'm like, I don't know where I am right now. (laughs) Just like (laughs) I'm super confused.
2: Okay.
0: So you're telling me in a thousand years of life, you wouldn't at least try DDR to see if it helped alleviate some weekend boredom?
1: I love I am a huge fan of DDR. I used to play DDR every day when I was in middle school and high school. (laughs) But like this family in Shang-Chi, like it's like it's part of a flashback where they're reminiscing on like the good times that they had when the kids were young. And one of them is like them playing DDR. And I'm like, this feels like someone told them to put this scene in the movie and it makes no sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Feeling like you're being pandered to in any way is always disappointing because you're like, I would like you to treat me like an equal respectful. I mean, no one pan. Actually, I take the back. Everyone panders to me racially as a white dude. Like it's all racial pandering, but like specifically like that kind of thing, but like other things where I'm like, oh, that's fan service. Oh, you're just like, that doesn't actually make coherent sense within the world you're building, you're doing things. But like, it really begs the question of how much a filmmaker is supposed to be engaged with an audience. Like at what point, like how much are you making exactly the movie you want to make true unto itself? And how much do you want to like engage with continuing to keep audience interest? Because like if that's during like, yeah, it's a complicated thing making a movie and like m- where you meet the audience and where you leave the audience. Yeah.
1: I will say there were a couple scenes where the characters do karaoke and I'm like, I will, this, this is fine. This is okay. The dance dance revolution. Not so sure. But anyway, that's a very minor note. I think overall I applaud the filmmakers. I applaud the studio for making an Asian American film. Clearly, you know. I hope they've learned that there is an audience for this, so they should continue down this road. And I will say also, like all of the actors' fluency in Mandarin and English was really impressive. And that, like the whole first, I don't know, thirty to forty-five minutes of the film is like all in Chinese, and I'm way down for well, that.
0: The fact that that exists and wasn't in any of the articles, even the Fox news article I read (laughs) about the film, it sort of says something about where like, you know, can you like, like in the nineties, if a movie started with 30 minutes in another language, it would be in every review. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that we're now in a place where it's like, no, you might read subtitles for 30 minutes. I remember in the nineties talking to friends who were like, I won't even watch a movie with subtitles. That is so wild. I know it's insane. I mean, you know, I, the nineties. And now we've like come to a place where it's like, Oh, you can open a big blockbuster action movie. And it makes sense that this should be in this language. So let's have it be in that language as opposed to some of the other like twisty turny things that people have done where it's like, all right, well it's all going to be in English and people will just have accents for these scenes. And you're like, does that always work? I don't know that it works. I I don't know that it makes sense.
1: That's one of the things that actually I really appreciate about this film because it's like, it's just like, you know, no fucks given. Yeah, it's going to be in Chinese. And I watch it and I'm like, this is, you know, I feel, I'm glad that I am like having to read subtitles right now because I don't speak Chinese because that feels like authentic to the film. DDR, not so much, but you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there is no perfect film that lands every beat and it seems like exception, excessive inclusion of DDR. I wonder if DDR paid for it. <laughs> uh, I don't even know who developed it, but like product placement can sometimes be a little clunkers. Yeah, uh, that's um, also one of those things of like with these big studio movies, like people go out looking for product placement early in the process before the script. So it's entirely possible at some point they were like, all right, who are the brands that we might want to get product placement from? And somebody was like, "Ooh, DDR, let's call them. get DDR. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's a so, there's
1: a there's a scene in the movie where they're flying in a helicopter in the in the thousand year old dad's helicopter going back to this like compound that exists in, you know, some realm of no time and space and they're in this helicopter and they're all wearing Bose headphones. And I'm like, I don't think (laughs) wearing Bose headphones.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's complicated with the Marvel films. I mean, we, we think of them as being huge budget productions, but they all have budget limitations. They're all trying to find ways to do more with less and find ways to find tie-ins. I mean, you know, aside from, I only watched one of the new Jurassic Park movies, but like it's a Mercedes ad, like it's just one long, there's so many Benzes in that new Jurassic Park movie. I was like, this is totally ridiculous. And then, you know, I mean, Captain Marvel is partially supported by the Air Force. Like it, Captain Marvel is effectively an Air Force recruitment tool. So one of the challenges I think any filmmaker faces, oh yeah, the, the like Air Force involvement in Captain Marvel I think up to and includes Captain Marvel cast doing, like, promo things about the Air Force.
2: Wow. Um, I did not know yeah. that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, like, yeah, it's it's an interesting, like, yeah.
2: One but, thing I wonder about is, I mean, with with streaming stuff becoming, you know, the, the norm is, like, I think I read about this or heard about it, or maybe it's in, in the works or something, but the whole concept of, like, Having ads like actually changing, like you'd you'd buy ad space on a streaming movie for a certain period of time, and then that they could actually change it after the fact. So, like if you have like a billboard in a movie, they could like yeah, like if it's it Tedrasso
0: yeah, and it's all you know any sports pitch is wrapped in ads now, and you could change those. Yeah, exactly. Which I is, mean, I is think it's also- kind of a weird thought. It also sort of begs the question, I mean, I remember dealing with this a lot. I, you know, the production company I had used to do a lot of music video stuff. And, like, we worked on a Will I Am video. And, like, of course, his weird headphone products were going to be in those. But, like, it shows up in a lot of other vi- music videos now, product placement, because that is one of the ways you can pay for a video. And I think, you know, it is interesting as a filmmaker to debate. How you want to interact with product placement in your movies? Because it is often, you know, I've worked on hundred thousand dollar movies where product placement was part of it, which is crazy. But you know, it is, it is everywhere. It is part of how you offset parts of your budget, and like you do want to think about as you go into this where you want to draw the line. And I think like promoting Bose headphones, like they are the best. Of the noise canceling headphones, although I personally own Monoprice because they're like a quarter of the price, but the Bose are very good. Like supporting DDR, like more people, like there are definitely people who learned about DDR from Shang-Chi and that rules, probably, right?
1: I'd be surprised because <laughs> it's been around for so long. But yeah, maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean somebody, some some 15-year-old it's like, watching Ooh, what's San- that game. Yeah, what's that game? Can I play that game? Is that like still an available thing for the PS twelve or whatever? <laughs> So yeah, I mean, it, it is sort of a thing as we navigate our careers, if we have ambitions to try and make anything on a big scale like that, part of the conversation is always going to be the involvement, you know, unless you're working on an ancient Rome piece. Although I feel like there's like weird stuff where product placement shows up in like Westerns and period films too. I feel like I saw some films set in the twenties or thirties, which clearly had a Ford or GM tie-in. It's not coming to mind, but I will remember it eventually where you're like, that seems placey to me. Yeah. It's really tricky. It is a complicated thing. All right, let's move on to good deal, bad deal. So good deal, bad deal is a newer segment on our thing where we talk about deals. We're going to talk about a deal today that I think is universally a bad deal, but often gets sold as a good deal. And I just wanted to talk about some examples from our lives with it because I have a couple of good ones. So we're recording this on Labor Day. And to be clear, this is not a deal anyone above us offered. The three of us like on an email thread, figured out a time that worked for all of us. I believe we are all happy to be here. If you two are mad about being here on Labor Day, this will be a good time to hash it out in public.
2: Yeah, I'm low-key kind of kind of pissed about it. So just. All right, I was well, let's thinking about
1: canceling this morning, <laughs> but
2: I am here. No, JK, JK. I'm good.
0: <laughs> but in my career in film, I have been offered many, many, many opportunities to work on holidays. It has always been sold to me as either A, this has to happen for whatever reason involving client delivery schedules or whatever, or B, this is an opportunity where you're getting this opportunity on the job that's like two or three steps up higher on the ladder than you would normally get because the bigger people are obviously taking their holiday. And I just want to flat out say I did it a bunch. Universally, like After the bigger people, two or three steps up the ladder for me came back from holiday, they ended up keeping the I never turned anybody into a new client that I did year-round work with by working on holidays. Like they would hire me on the holiday and then they'd go back to working with the normal people they would when the holidays were available done. And so I think it is a universally bad deal to work on holidays. Now, there's like these borderline exceptions, which is there is in LA, there's this event called Coachella, which half of LA, like literally Silver Lake was a ghost town every year during Coachella. And I would always book work during Coachella because I couldn't care less. And that's technically like working on a holiday because all the other people who did what I did were probably at Coachella. So I was available and they weren't. And I feel like NAB and Cinegear were the same thing. I missed a lot of NABs and Cinegears because like all the other DPs were at NAB or Cinegear. And if somebody needed something shot, I could book like three or four steps above my level. But like you know, there were if you work in commercials, you're going to end up getting a, a lot of holiday work because of the Super Bowl. And even if it's not a Super Bowl spot, because all the other companies are working on Super Bowl spots, they're passing on jobs that then you're in the running for. And like for like five or six years of my life, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, by default, I was in the office. There was one time I was even in the office Christmas morning until about noon. And I think it's always a bad deal. Terrible. There was one year on New Year's, I was in the office with two clients who are a married couple who couldn't agree on anything. And like we were there until like nine thirty at night, and finally I was like, I gotta go because I wanted to go to a New Year's Eve party. It's freaking
1: New Year's, yeah.
0: I know, and and like they were like, oh my god, yeah, I could totally understand. Like it must be really rough when you have a difficult client. And I was like, you are a married couple who fought for the last eight hours. You are a (laughs) difficult client. Like I am (laughs) just trying to work with you. And then another year, everybody in the office, like ten of us, worked through the holidays. I'm not going to say the name of the pop star, but it was for a pop star who like the Monday after new year's was apparently expecting to see the video. And so we like worked, everyone was in the office Christmas Eve. Everyone was in the office, new year's Eve. I think new year's day, we were in the office by like one or two in the afternoon, like accounting for party recovery. We sent it through, I think it was January 4th. That was the Monday after new year's. And then we didn't hear any notes for like a week. And then finally, like January 11th, we checked in and they were like, oh, actually, she decided to holiday on this Caribbean island where there's no internet. So she oh, hasn't seen it yet. my God. So That she, is
2: such a like, common thing. Oh my no God. one
0: told us. And it was so infuriating. Was I was like, hate, why did we just that's do my that? my
2: biggest pet peeve is when you're like really stretching yourself to finish something and you send it over and it didn't matter. And that happens so much. Like that happens to me like once a month, I feel like, where it's like, I... I'll I'll just completely sacrifice myself <laughs> to the altar of whatever project it is and like you know the next day with bags under my eyes I'm like D- uh what did they think of it what, did they like the did they like what I what I made and they're like oh they're actually out today <laughs> and I'm just like <laughs> burning white hot rage like oh my gosh I hate that so much yeah I have a lot of thoughts on all this because for me the thing that kind of comes to my mind about it Is sort of kind of what you just said. Like the whole working on the holiday thing for me. One thing is, and like I just always feel like whatever you're working on in this industry for whoever your client is, it's the most important thing in the world. Like it's like there's never like a low key project. It's like no, this is their big priority on every level, so it has to get done the way I want it to to get done or whatever. And you work on a holiday, and and almost every single time, it just ends up not really mattering that you did that. Like it's just kind of like oh, I could have just done that tomorrow. I mean, it would have been the same thing. And it's like this feeling of I, I don't know if you guys ever have this feeling, like where like oh I wish I had like a normal job. Like I wish I could just be like an accountant or something and just like have holidays and like go fishing when I feel like it and like be a person and like not be you know not watch from afar as my wife and daughter get to go to the park and have fun. But I'm like stuck editing some dumb edit and it doesn't matter and I could have just waited till tomorrow. Like I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, I think a lot of this is very f- fresh on my mind right now. Cause these are a lot of things that I'm like currently in the throes of re- like reprioritizing things and like making sure that I don't end up working on holidays unless it's recording a podcast for a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I think, I don't know you, when, when you work on holidays I feel like to that client, then you become the the person who works on holidays. Oh and yeah, it, it's like, do you really want that to be your brand? Because like I think there's some sort of intrinsic value and perceived value to being the person who goes, no, I don't work on holidays. Right. I, I feel like there's like a certain like, oh that ooh that person might be a badass because they're like making demands. Like I I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at.
1: Yeah, I'm actually so. I work, you know, as I mentioned before on this podcast, I work a full-time job. I work for an ad agency. So all of these issues are a part of our everyday. And like, yes, on the one hand, I have this sort of like full, full-time position where I can technically take holiday at any time. But even in this full-time job, I'm still struggling to learn to take holidays and still struggling to like put up those boundaries because every day is a sprint. We're always dealing with clients who want stuff now. Right. And so I am constantly like, well, can I take 2 weeks off and or can I even take like a, 2 days off in this month? I don't feel like I can. I'm just going to save it until the end of the year. And I'm actually personally now reaching a point where I'm almost I'm like almost at burnout. I had to take Thursday and Friday off last week just to chill out because mm-hmm. I was Good like Good
2: for you. I'm glad you did that. I was like I'm glad about you, you to saw that come <laughs> rage <laughs> yeah. quit my
1: job. <laughs> um yeah. but And so, yeah, both with working on actual federal holidays and, like, respecting your own holidays, it's, like, about knowing in advance. And I think this is something that comes with more time spent in the industry and more maturity in general, but it really does feel like it takes a long time to develop this skill of just saying, like, yeah, Labor Day weekend, I am not working. Um, Like George. George is not here today. George (laughs) does. What's up?
2: (laughs) George, yeah. George was like, "Y'all can figure it
0: out." <laughs> <laughs> total, total respect for the boss move yeah. of power move of not working holiday. Yeah, but I, I wanted
1: to just. And none of us are like, "Why isn't George here?" None of us are like, "George is letting down the podcast." You know, no, what
0: that's I mean? the thing. George it's has like, failed
2: it's, us. It never, it never actually matters. Like, in, unless you like work for the the president or something, and like they're about to give a speech tomorrow, like. It never really
0: actually matters. Like I would say, even that doesn't matter. Honestly, who, yeah. When's the yeah. last time you watched end to end a speech from a from a politician? Never. Who wasn't no. a AOC? For grade school.
1: Oh yeah, fair, fair, fair. Yeah.
0: I think unless you're working in a medical field where like you are the organ delivery person and someone needs to be on for every day. My old roommate did that because she was like, I'm not squeamish and it's great money for an actor. And so she was like an actor who delivered organs. Wow. Yeah. I mean, actors got to figure out some way where you're like, I never miss an audition. I just pass on delivering that organ that day because organ delivery is freelance. But yeah, it's brilliant. But I wanted to talk about this even though we all think it's a bad deal. Because I remember getting sold on this so many times. Even that pop star video I just talked about was like, first time working with that creative agency, first time working with that record label, first time working with a pop star that big. We got it because we were willing. We were young and hungry and stupid and willing to like work everybody to death through the holidays. And like it gets sold as like, This is just how you got to break your bones. This is how you do it. And like, you know, if anybody's not following IA stories, IA stories is a great Instagram account. Everybody should follow it. Kath just sent me something from yesterday. And like, everybody gets this pressure. Everybody gets these speeches. Everybody gets this bullshit. And it's like, no, this is labor day. Like this is the day that is meant to celebrate working people by by letting them out of work like every store that's closed today i respect every restaurant that's closed today i respect like this is a day where like working people are supposed to rest podcasting is pretty close to rest so i'm not going to feel that guilty about the fact that we're podcasting today cuz it's like i'm not shoveling while we do this i'm literally lying down while we do this <laughs> but i'm playing fortnite right now yeah but it's like <laughs> respect well except you're doing like twice the labor (laughs) but i just wanted to i wanted a universal bad deal for labor day to be like you know over and over in your career this like working on a holiday thing is going to come up and like remember that like george isn't here remember it's okay not to work holiday and you need to be a sane human and yeah yeah, it's like it's an important one
1: and burnout sorry just really quickly burnout burnout comes so fast. Like you could be trucking along after working, you know, eight, eight days in a row, 12 hours a day and feel like I'm doing okay. Like, I think I can make it to the weekend. And then on that ninth day, be like, this is effing terrible. Like I hate everyone. And like, like burnout happens. It just comes up really quickly. And so it's, so it's important to sort of be aware of that. And speaking, you know, like at my agency, Like I had a moment on Tuesday where I was like, I should just quit right now. At that point, we'd already like burned through three different vendors on this one project that's been killing us because this client is like quite demanding because we're all just like trying to do the best work, but then like have all let our boundaries slip and ended up working later than we usually do. Ended up working weekends. So all that to say, just like protect yourself, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, moving on. We've got two tech stories this week. First up, in tech news, Red has announced a new camera, the brand new V-Raptor, which is an interesting <laughs> name. I mean, I like Red's names. Red's names Red's are ridiculous. Red's
2: so wheels off, man. It's so yeah, funny. Yeah, I like, haven't heard the
0: expression wheels off before, but I like it. <laughs>
2: it's just like like they're i don't know like they're they're just and, and like the font is just so like beefy and like bold like i don't know it's it's all very um it's all very bro culture and i can't decide how i feel about it i've always been like monstro Monstro? really okay weapon weapon that was funny There was one called Red Weapon.
0: Oh, yeah, but they got rid of that really quickly because they were, like, tired of... Like, if you've ever tried to take a camera in and out of customs, you get pinged on everything. Yeah, I remember getting stuck in the uh, Lima, Peru airport because the Steadicam guy and I on a job were flying back together and, like, oh, my God, trying to get a Steadicam through customs? Like, because, you know, it, it... it's not recognized. Like if you don't work in entertainment, all the pieces of a steady game don't make a lot of sense. Oh yeah. And they, they, look you know, like, and they assume like, oh, you're trying to import this guy has like
2: 12 it. machine guns.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, you know, just like, did we miss the flight? We had 24 hours of travel that day because of the steady game guy, who's a really nice guy. I don't fault him for it. But like, you know, it's a big deal. So like naming something weapon and then trying to get it through customs all over the world for the rest of time, like that was just <laughs> dumb dumb. <laughs> The V-Raptor, really interesting update from RED for a bunch of reasons. So it's an 8K vistavision size sensor, which, if you remember the Monstro, also an 8K vistavision size sensor. And as far as we can tell right now, it's the same sensor, which I love that RED did that. And I'm going to talk in a bit about why I love that RED did that. Before we get to that, though, it's a brand new body. So... The red body is something called the DSMC, the Digital Stills in Motion Camera. This is the fir- third revision. So it's DSMC 3. You know, red cameras are popular for their very small body size. Like, if you have no accessories on it, it's a great camera for a gimbal, great, great camera for action. It's the reason why they used it on the Suicide Squad. For some reason, people on the internet like to say red cameras don't look good, which baffles me because, you, like, the Suicide Squad looked great, shot on red cam. Like, I don't understand why. Like the internet just loves to be like, the only good looking camera is Alexa. And I'm like, no, you can also actually make red look great. Alexa's look slightly better naturally, but you can tweak a red to get there. And, uh, but the big deal is autofocus. So autofocus has gotten really good lately. In the last few years, autofocus really comes into its own. But at the top end cinema where you're getting all the cinema features you want, you haven't really had autofocus. And this is the first camera that like natively, The lens mount is an RF mount specifically. There's like a PL adapter if you want to use old non-autofocus lenses, but it's built for autofocus in cinema. And like, that is a headline that is really interesting because we've seen amazing autofocus in the Sony a7S III and amazing autofocus in the Canon R5. And like, let's be real. The Sony FX9 autofocus is basically like magic, but none of those are quite like full on cinema cameras. Right. And, in terms of the features we're looking for at a cinema camera, like massive sensor, massive dynamic range, really great color reproduction, internal raw, robust timecode tools, robust audio I.O. Like that's what we want out of a cinema camera. And this is the first, like, oh, we have the full thing with autofocus.
2: How, I actually How, how far oh, do you ahead. think we are from lenses having having autofocus capabilities? Like mo, actually, on, on a large scale.
0: So I think Panavision are gonna be the people who do it first. And I think Panavision are going to be the people who do it first because when they, Panavision sort of gave up on making their own camera bodies smartly because the right. Genesis was not great. Panavision was never really about the camera body, although Millennium's a great body, but like Panavision was always about the lenses. And so with the new DXLs, it's just a really nice red camera with Panavision glass. And so I think the DXL3, which will be built on this new V Raptor, presumably, will then have like real cine lenses with beautiful autofocus. And that will be really interesting. And, you know, the DXL two was a bigger hit than a lot of people remember. It's all over. Lots of things shoot on it. Um, a lot of big DPs love it. Panavision has great infrastructure for supporting big TV shows, and movies, and great loyalty there. So I think that's where we'll see it. I think we're still five years away. Yeah. To be honest. Like, yeah, I just even thought it was effects- interesting.
2: Like the, because cause as of right now it's just the the all the RF lenses are the only ones so it's like it's weird to have uh you know this 8K camera that can essentially use like I I mean the still lenses you know and which is not really something that occurred to me I mean they those are great lenses though like I I mean those are really good lenses I'm I'm mostly I think mostly I'm intrigued about the RF mount Thing about this camera in terms of like, I I don't know if I, I think I kind of view that as a negative a little bit, but I think it's just a sign of like basically where everything is heading, and that's why I ask. Like, I, I wonder, you know, how 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 long it'll be before you know on on narrative sets we're seeing a lot of autofocus.
0: More well, the lenses are coming up more slowly than they want. I remember at the FX nine launch. Sony announced that they were going to do a whole lineup of autofocus cine lenses. And we were all psyched. We were like, okay, Sony, with the alphas, you've really proven that you've got autofocus on lock, but we would still have to use your still photo lenses to do it. And, you know, still photo lenses and cinema lenses are slightly different. They're beautiful, beautiful still lenses, but they still have some drawbacks that don't work in motion, like heavy breathing or, you know, um, different flare characteristics, sensor to sensor. Um, They're not telecentric, something like that. So, like, we wanted some real Cine lenses that did autofocus. And Sony announced with the FX9 that they were also within, I think, a year of the FX9, there was going to be like a full set of autofocus Cine lenses. The FX9's been around for two years. There's been a pandemic, but like, I haven't seen in the field those autofocus Cine lenses. All of the Panavision DXL lenses, though, have internal motors. Every so the whole DXL lineup is ready, meaning. That you know, from the beginning of DXL, you take one of those Panavision, you know, uh, Super Primos or whatever they're called. You pop it on, and you don't need to put on external motors for focus, iris, and zoom. You can just attach like there's a couple of different like remote controls you can use to do all your focus, iris, and zoom, powered by the camera body. So I suspect that DSMC three because the lenses are already there. Now that the body's ready, because the thing about the first DXL and the the second DXL is you actually need like stuff happening at the sensor for phase detect autofocus, PDF, as it's called, to work. And the cameras weren't ready to power the autofocus in the lenses. But now that the camera's ready to power the autofocus in the lenses, I feel like we're going to start seeing it more and more. And the interesting thing about Panavision is people will rent the DXL xl three whenever it's out next year because it's Panavision and because they want all that support infrastructure and stuff. And the autofocus will just be there and then they'll try it out. They won't have to like previously, if you wanted to try the autofocus, you had to try a package you wouldn't have used anyway in order to get that feature. But now that feature is just going to be there on a package you would anyway be using.
1: Can I ask like a novice question? Um,
0: Yeah, please.
1: When you say autofocus, are we talking about like the camera fully decides what it's focusing on all the time or so like you with the at- FX
0: nine, you can set it to like face detector, eye detect and it will literally like follow a person as they walk around. You can see little like face detect bubbles that will pop up on the faces and you can like pick what face it follows and switch faces and while middle you're the take. rolling. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You could mm-hmm. like a lot of them have like a touch screen where like as you're rolling, you just get kind of used to like just tapping on a person's face or something and it'll switch over to that like especially wow. if you want to do like a rack focus or something but i i definitely there's definitely still a lot of room for growth on that side of things especially if if you were to try to use it for narrative filmmaking also i mean i feel like autofocus looks kind of unnatural like so if you do tap on someone else's face it's going to do like a like a really fast like machine like sort of Mm. focus so and a lot of times you can like change settings and stuff but yeah no it's it's like the the phase detect thing it's like looking for for actual motion and i also i mean (laughs) for like the third podcast in a row where i'm talking about lidar i do think lidar in conjunction with camera stuff is is going to be a thing too i think if LiDAR, you know, because then then it's really sensing depth and all that sort of stuff. And I think it'll, I don't know. I think that's going to be a thing.
1: I yeah. I really love, Todd, that you just brought up that like the autofocus, like a rack-racking focus through autofocus feels like a machine's doing it instead of a human, because I think that is something that would startle me as a viewer.
2: Yeah, it it looks like, it makes it look like video or whatever. And, and that's wow. the thing... You know, but my
0: theory on that is some of that is because it's still photo lenses, which are not designed Agreed. for s- f- smooth focus moves. Because it's still mm. photo lenses. Only job is focus as fast as physically possible. Right. Whereas a motion picture lens, if you like turn the wheel, there should be like a little fluid drag to it and it should be feathered. And I suspect Panavision has their act together enough that like Panavision glass tethered to DSMC 3 body, we might actually see some digital autofocus that looks a little silkier is my guess.
2: It'd be cool if you could like even like turn on a setting to like accidentally overshoot a little bit and come back, like just give it that sort <laughs> <Yeah>. of like, <laughs> like, like purposefully go out of focus for a second. Like, yeah, over, give it a that user quality. Yeah,
0: That comes exactly. up a lot in all sorts of areas of robotics where they're like, what are the, where are the places where we work in a little messiness that we would expect from messiness? And like, how do we mimic actual human messiness? Yeah, I could totally see that. I could totally see like, you know, like dial in a little artificial humanity you can turn up and down a knob for a little bit of artificiality. The other big thing I find really exciting about this is that as far as I can tell, other than adding PDF technology, this isn't a major sensor revolution. Like usually with red, it's like, there's a new sensor and it's like, we're adding a dash X to the name. This is like the Mysterium. Then this is the Mysterium dash X, or this is the, you know, there's always a new, and they're they're not really pushing that this time. Other than the addition of the technology needed for PDAF. I kind of like that because if you remember Alexa, Alexa has been using the same sensor since 2008. You buy a newer Alexa body, you're getting more slow-mo features. You're getting like internal raw, but you're not getting a different sensor. And like, I think it's a little bit of maturity from red that they're like, Oh, actually this sensor is pretty great. And you can get, be- I mean, we've all seen beautiful things shot on the 8K VV. And so like we're, they're improving it. They're adding, you know, what's needed for PDAF, but like, it doesn't, the marketing is not pushing it as like a complete sensor redesign. I yeah, like no,
2: I, I completely agree that. Cause that's always been one of the more like confusing aspects of red's offering. Like the, the the intersection between the different brains and the different sensors, and then you have you know all the different DSMC stuff and all that. So yeah, I th- the more they can simplify it, the better. I do. I mean, they are just like almost co- like constantly comparing this camera to the Monstro, it's just to the Ranger Monstro, and uh, it appears to be like they they showed it. It appears to be like almost I, like identical. I think what they changed mostly was the the red code. So like the the way that the sensor, you know, debayers and all that sort of stuff in, in camera and all that, I think it's all they've optimized that a little bit. Like I think the the Redcode HQ in, in this camera is like way way higher quality than the the Monstros was, which is interesting because the Monstro is like a you know sixty thousand dollar camera, and this one is like twenty what twenty five k twenty four
0: five. There we go. Which I think is a good price point for them.
2: I, I yeah. I, I mean, I think that's again that's another kind of sign of the times and also a sign of growth in my opinion is they priced it kind of like it's still higher than the best uh c300 model or c500 model whatever but it's not you know it's not like the cost of a amazing car it's like a cost of a a a car that someone like me would drive
0: (laughs) yeah and it's got and, and it's about the cost of like a c700 full frame but unlike the C700 full frame, it will not have nearly the rolling shutter problems because Red has worked a lot on that. It's not a global shutter like the Komodo, um, but you know it's got a very fast refresh rate, so you will not be dealing with.
2: Yeah, that that was an interesting. I, I expected them to have global shutter, and when they didn't, they were like, "But it's better. It's it's not. It's still looked. It, it's not going to have really bad rolling shutter." So I was like, "Oh, oh we'll, we'll be the judge of that."
0: I mean, if it's going to be an improvement, I mean, the AK Fist Division rolling shutter is not that bad. And bringing autofocus to the masses, I think it's worth the trade off. Agreed. All right. And then final tech news of the week Fuji. And I know many of you who are like Canon or Sony loyalists are like, why do they talk about Fuji? But I recently found out Todd is also a Fuji owner. So I'm a big um, Fuji you know. fan. Yeah. Big Fuji, like there's two big Fuji fans here. Fuji, who are most popular for their XT lineup of cameras. The X-T4 is the current model, and it's like 4K internal image stabilization is great. I still shoot the X-H1. Fuji just had an event. They've had no real major camera releases this year. Oh, the other, like, we, I love Fuji most of all for the color. I think that's Todd's thing too. Yep. But I also kind of respect that Fuji's whole thing is like, we're going to stick with the smaller sensor size of... Micro four thirds, roughly, which is roughly equivalent to like a Super thirty five, like traditional motion picture size. And Fuji is very public where they're like, we're not doing full frame; we do medium format, massive sensors, and we do micro four thirds, and that's what we do. Full frame doesn't make any sense for us, which I love. They rolled out like a new medium format camera, which is great, but still too expensive. It's like you know, I'm not paying six thousand dollars for a camera that's that stills first. Like if I'm going to put out that much money, it should be like a motion picture camera, like the twelve K or something. Right, but uh, and then they did a couple of weird re- revisions on their like thousand dollar cameras. But what was really interesting about their releases this week is they came out with a couple of new primes that opened a one point four, a twenty three, and a thirty three. And the entire press release, the whole focus was faster auto, faster and better autofocus, fo- and higher resolutions for future sensors. So if you are a Fuji fan at all, you know the XH one was their like first video focused model. It hasn't been updated in four years. There's big rumors of an X H two next year, which would likely be an eight K raw internal recording camera, sorry, eight K internal recording, probably raw output. Cause they work. The bigger cameras tend to work well with Atomos from Fuji and eight uh, K's are going to require higher resolution. And the other big rumor, cause Fuji has pretty good continuous autofocus, but it's not quite as good as the Sony's. And the other big rumor is that the X H two will have better autofocus which makes sense. It's been four years, but also these lenses are starting to roll out. So it's a little bit of that Panavision situation again, where they don't want to be in a situation where the camera comes out and there's no lenses that can do the autofocus. So it's really good news for filmmakers that they're like, Nope, these lenses are coming that have the faster actuator motors and the higher resolution glass. So that when the camera comes, there will be lens options available for you for doing really slick autofocus. And so you can go out and you can get like a, you know, a, f1.4 autofocus lens for like a grand and f1.4 in like 23 or 33 millimeter. The reason why it's around a grand is because the sensor is smaller. If you wanted to build a 23 millimeter lens that covers full frame and have autofocus, you're going to end up at a higher price point. But I have a sneaking suspicion that like the 23 and 33 are going to look great because the other thing beyond color with Fuji is the lenses just look so good. They make such great glass. Yeah, so for me, yeah. this is Confirmation and they also confirm they're going to build a video focused eighteen to one hundred five millimeter zoom, which I suspect is going to be like the kit lens for the XH two.
2: I Wonder how big that's going to be.
0: It's going to be pretty big, yeah. But it's it could be parfocal.
2: That would be nice. Yeah, the thing what, I love sorry, about what's parfocal. That means you can you can base the the focus doesn't change as you zoom. So like you can focus on mm-hmm. something and zoom from, you know, zero to 100, and it'll stay in focus the whole time.
0: So like still lenses are almost never parfocal, which means if you zoom in and get focus and zoom out, you lose focus. A motion picture zoom, if you zoom in and focus, you should zoom out and it should still be focused in the same place. And this is actually something that throws filmmakers all the time is like, I remember so many of my friends, the first time they bought a 5D Mark II, they bought like a Canon zoom or whatever to go with it, which is great. But if you're used to shooting on video cameras, you're used to zooming in, getting focus, zooming out. That doesn't work on a still lens. The focus drifts.
1: I Fuji see.
0: made these two amazing zooms, the MK zooms. I love those zooms. They're beautiful, and they're both parfocal for like three thousand dollars each. Um, I don't think these will. Be, this lens they're talking about now is going to be quite as nice as the MKs, and it might not be parfocal. But they definitely are like. We are making a lens to be a like single lens for a single person video shooter to have the coverage they need, and that makes me think it might be parfocal, maybe, which would be awesome. It would probably make it very uh, more expensive, but like having that like eighteen to one hundred five coverage walk around zoom covers all my needs. Parfocal zoom would be super slick if they yeah,
2: do it. That that was the only reason I was asking how big it'll end up being because that would be the only thing holding it back. That What I love my Fuji for is just throwing it in the bag and just having it, you know? And so, but I also would love to ha- have that whole range. I'd be sick.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love my Fuji. I've been wandering around with it on a pancake lately. And like, I keep it on my, uh, I use a peak clip and I keep it on my waist yeah. because like there is nothing like the speed, especially when I'm biking. I can pull it off my waist and be shooting like when I see something interesting in like, so fast because the body is so small and the lenses are so small. The drawback you get into a Sony because the bodies are small in Sony, but the lenses are massive.
2: Right? Yeah, I'm hype. I'm hype about whatever Fuji's doing any time. I I just love everything they do. So why I, yeah. is it
1: more of a niche brand? Like, why are you guys the only two hardcore Fuji? I think
2: fans? I, I'll speak for myself, and this is my take on all camera things. Like I. I'm not a huge Canon guy. I'm not a huge Sony guy. And it literally comes down to like intangible qualities that I just like. And And I think it's with Fuji, uh, their color science, when I shoot stuff with it, it's kind of the thing that I want almost all the time. And I'd say the same thing about Blackmagic. Like I don't, I don't personally, a lot of camera, camera, I don't like the word nerds, but a lot of camera tech people they they freak out over form factor and like the the shape of the camera and like you know everyone thinks like black magic's cameras are weird looking and and hard to hold or whatever um, like i don't almost don't even slightly think about that i just like is the image the thing that i like when i shoot it and if it is then that's my favorite thing so like that's why i love fuji is like they have they have all these great film emulations they they routinely kind of give me the tools that i I don't know that that I kind of wish other cameras had, and I think I think it's a niche thing because it is a specific look. Probably, would you agree with that, Charles? Like it's it like the Fuji stuff looks a certain way that to me is like really filmic, which is a you know that's like a, a kind of a a word that has a lot of meanings these days, but it is. For me, just the way the color looks, it's just a a, a little bit more of this kind of look that I like to have, and I think a lot of people may may not gravitate towards that look quite as much. I that's don't know. funny
1: because that's the association that I have with it too, but I didn't really know why that is.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's like to me Fuji has always been image first, like color science first, like mm. uh, even even going back like going back as far as like the film camera days, like they. Uh, and and their film stocks, like I, I just always feel like I just like that they have like a cinemat, like a filmy, like just like I don't know. There's a tonality to it that feels a lot more organic to me. With all my Fuji f- footage that I've ever shot, I, every time I, I just drop on like a, a like a LUT and I'm like, yep, that's what I wanted, uh, wow. and it it almost always never takes any any further uh, tweaking. I don't know. So it, for me, it's a lot less about the the more technical aspects of the cameras because like clearly i think i I mean yes the autofocus on sony and canon is a hundred times better but the fuji i mean the fact that fuji just has it that's enough for me so i don't know it's that's where i'm at with it
0: i think that for fuji the i think the reason why fuji doesn't get as much attention is because people like binary binary battles right like in soda people love like Coke versus Pepsi, like in cameras, people love Canon versus Sony. Like, I think that there's just like people like to reduce it to there, these two good versus evil. And like, you know, in motion picture cameras, it's like red versus Alexa, even though like, frankly, the Panasonic Vericam was like cheaper than either of them. And like, like very close to being as good, especially in low light. But like, you know, the battle, like people like reducing it to these like very simple binaries And they don't like dealing in the ambiguity of like, oh no, there's like nine great choices and like different choices are going to work well in different jobs. I also think part of it is when YouTube first took off Canon, the Canon 5D Mark II was legitimately a revolution. Like it legit improved things, but Canon and Sony also had big motion picture like, or video let's call it video, big video businesses that they were trying to protect with marketing Right. There were, even before the Canon C line, like the C100 and the C500, they had tons of other. They had the XL line and they had like, you know, all sorts of other robust things there. And Sony had like the F900s and F950s, which looked like garbage, but they also had like all sorts of stuff in sort of the affordable space. And so they had a big footprint in motion and they had a big, when things were taking off, they had, you know, like QWERTY is famously not the fastest typing keyboard, but when Typewriters became popular, that was the keyboard. And so now we're stuck with it. A little bit is path dependence. When YouTube really exploded, we had Sony and ca- Canon first. And then by 2014, Sony really in the space. Because, you know, like regularly, if you look at like still photo stats in Japan, Fuji is the number one seller some years. And like, you know, there are big years for Fuji where like in the top 10, four of the cameras are Fuji in Sony's home country and Canon's home country country, too, actually. They're both Japanese companies. So, like, it is is a major competitor that in motion I think often gets forgotten.
1: Because people were so used to shooting on Sony and Canon when they started shooting video themselves.
0: Exactly. Because a lot of them started with, like, whatever XL1 or, you know, whatever other non-stills photo camera that they had. And Fuji doesn't have, like, a $3,000 video camera. They don't have a $30,000 video camera. They have $30,000 video lenses. But in stills, and I think the XH1 has a real opportunity to like build an audience for them because if it is, if it is the things the rumors seem likely to be pointing to, which is like as good autofocus as Sony, T1 lenses under $1,000 and like 8K and raw out to an Atomos, like that's a killer combination in a camera that doesn't weigh very much and gives you really robust color.
2: And, it'll and I think probably, it's a, it'll likely cost about you know twelve hundred bucks or something. Like brand nah, new.
0: an XH, the XH one came out at twenty one hundred when it came out. It was oh, down okay. to eighteen hundred after a year. It'll probably launch around twenty one hundred, but still twenty one hundred is way less oh, than okay. an A 7s S three for eight K. Yeah, come on. Yeah, so it's I I think it's actually a testament to how good their color science is that Fuji manages to have the. Level of support it does in a world that wants to reduce everything to binaries because it finds binaries more comfortable. And I will say this: when you wander around the floor at Cinegear and at NAB, you see an astounding number of Fuji cameras around people's uh, shoulders. I remember one year, like Bob Primes walked by, and we were at the Canon booth, and I think he was speaking at Canon that week. Maybe it wasn't Bob Primes; maybe it was another guy. But it was like, um, and he had like a Fuji around his. It was like an XT three around his shoulder, like. It, like within the, like, we are, we take this seriously. We do this for like, at least partially for a living community. Fuji does have a presence that I think is like part of the thing that keeps it going. I think it made, they made a little bit of a mistake coming on a little late, but you know, so did Panasonic, like the EVA one came out a year too late, but I think they're going to catch up grounds. I also personally really wish they would launch like a $6,000 video camera.
2: That would be but sick. I would. would I would be. be so stoked about that.
0: Yeah, if they came out with like an FX nine competitor yeah. that was like all of the features you want, and you can use the MK zooms, and uh, yeah, it would be. Yeah, ridiculous. can you send them an email about that? I am actually going to email them this podcast, <laughs> and uh, well, no, I mean I'm not even kidding. Like I know I have two Fuji reps. I mean, just so everybody, I feel like we should always share everything publicly. Like we. Through writing for No Film School and being on this podcast, we meet people at all of the companies and sometimes they loan us stuff to play with. And then usually you like send them follow up emails. You're like, oh, hey, I talked about it on the podcast this week. I don't really know anyone at Red that well. Oh, no, I know one person at Red and I'll probably send them this podcast. So, like, you know, like we, I I haven't gotten to know Mr. Fuji, although I did have a bunch of one year at NAB, I got to meet like one of the head tech designers and it was awesome at Fuji. They're super nice. So, yeah.
2: Sweet. Yeah, oh. I, I, I'm excited about anything they put out.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about these two lenses. I think they're going to be sick. All righty, that was this week's No Film School podcast. Oh, we're over an hour. We got to wrap this up. All right, I'm Charles Hayne. I'm on the internet at charleshayne.com. You can also see my work at Amazon Prime uh, with uh, Salty Pirate and Angel's Birch. I'm launching a new podcast about how the film industry's labor system is fucked and we should fix it. And uh, that'll be launching soon. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, yeah. Cool.
1: Uh, I'm Kath Tolentino, filmmaker and producer. You can find me on Instagram at borderwoman.pictures, B-O-R-D-E-R, woman.pictures. And you can check out my short film Parachute on Short of the Week and
2: Amuleto. I'm Todd Blanketship, cinematographer, writer at No Film School. You can check out a new video we put up on YouTube about doing stuff with miniatures and visual effects and stuff like that. Pretty fun stuff. And uh, you can find me on Instagram at am I a filmmaker.
0: Oh, and I just kind of shouted out. I did a review of a new 50 millimeter T one lens and I, there was a YouTube component and every YouTube comment so far has been nice. So you guys should all check that out and continue saying nice things about it because it feels nice, especially because YouTube, the comments are are not always nice. Yeah. Sometimes the YouTube comments are a little mean and hurtful. So people should should check that out. It's on the No Film School homepage. The uh, Zongyi Mitigan uh, T1. It's a T1, and it actually looks pretty good. Ooh, nice! All right, guys. I will see everybody next week.
2: Thanks. Right. Bye.